Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Ladies and gentlemen, in studio today, a very special guest. Um, I I didn't recognize her from the last time I saw her because I, I, the last time I saw her, she was about 12 feet tall. <laughs> and I didn't remember, okay, that's, you know, but I was, this is the angle I was looking <laughs> up at. I, I just, it was just like this very, very tall person. She was standing on a stool, mm-hmm. uh, quite perilously, in fact. Because several of us were trying to hold the stool <laughs> so this person could talk. And, and poor Rem Barber was trying to hold it up. And his people worried about him. Like, is he going to fall? And, then, you know, it's one of the kind of mm-hmm. things everybody's trying to hold everybody up. Mm-hmm. And if he falls, then I would have fallen two other people. This would have been <laughs> the a total. Dominoes. There would have been a whole situation. But fortunately, uh, the Lord was there for us and kept her lifted up there. Uh, and she gave, uh, she spoke at one of the uh, impeachment marches and rallies uh, during the course of impeachment. Uh, she is with the Center for Popular Democracy. Jennifer Epps Addison is here in studio with us. How are you? I am so good, brother. Thank you so much for having <laughs> me. I thought you were going to say because, you know, I'm a black woman. And so every time you see me, my hair is likely to be different. And I think that's true. That too. You wear your hair I, different. Yeah, too. I had a nice long. You did. It was down. In. It was yeah, really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I have good hair it. that day. <laughs> <laughs> it's always good. It's always good, Jennifer. But, you know, I even, because I, I was streaming it on social media, some of it. And so people, if you are saw the stream from, you see this person and, and all you see is her. It was a beautiful day that yeah, day. Yeah, it was gorgeous. Blue sky and clouds and everything. And thousands and, of people out to yeah, demand accountability of yeah. this government. Well, let, well, let's start there uh, in the aftermath of all that. Mm. Where was it? Was it worth it? Mm. Will it have a lasting effect? Some, of course, the mainstream media, mainstream media being what it is, saw it as as us losing. Mm-hmm. And, oh, we shouldn't have done it. It was a waste of time, and it doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. But from your point of view, especially as you engage everyday people, mm-hmm. is, is that going to have a lasting effect? Is that going to stay with people? I mean, you know, Nelson Mandela tells us that everything is impossible until it's done, right? And so... 
I think there's a lot of, of vested interests in this country trying to s suppress people's expression, um, to suppress people from t like going directly to the source of power and telling them that they're not being represented. There's a vested interest in keeping us feeling like nothing we do matters. And yeah. so, of course, they're going to say that at the end of the, the day, this president is impeached. That will forever be the case. Not only is he impeached, but he was impeached with the largest number of votes in Congress ever in the history of impeachment. And he went on to a sham trial in the Senate that will ever be forever be a stain on those Republicans who failed to do their duty to country and instead chose, you know, not even partisan politics, but really chose to, uh, you know, undermine the very values we have in this country. This is the first impeachment trial in the history of the United States that did not call witnesses. Mm. I mean, let that sink in for a second. Yeah, and so yeah. when people say, did we lose? No, we won. We impeach Our goal was to impeach this president, and we did. Mm -hmm. We were very clear that it, it was unlikely that members of the Senate would do their duty to this country. And we believe, just like with Justice Kavanaugh, when we stood tall, and even though they told us you can't disrupt a Supreme Court hearing, you're not going to be able to do anything with this hearing, we went from a hearing that was supposed to be a one-and-done, one-day slam dunk and done, to weeks of women in protest, and then to the most transformative congressional midterm elections we've ever seen in this country, where we elected the most diverse, most progressive, most female uh, Congress in the history of the country. Yeah. I believe we will see the impact of impeachment on this election, um, You know, not just because Trump's base will be motivated, but because uh, you know people... You, you are seeing it, uh, middle of the road, moderates, conservatives, and even Republicans who are saying, you know, I'm a conservative, but I can't get down with this dereliction of duty. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it, it, it was definitely worthwhile. The Center for Popular Democracy. Tell us about Center for Popular Democracy and what it does. Yeah, so Center for Popular Democracy and our sister organization, which is our political arm, CPD Action, we're a network of grassroots organizations. So the people who are in your community fighting for higher wages, fighting for accountability of employees, um, you know, organizing unions, fighting toxic waste, uh, fighting for ac uh, access to housing and health care, those folks that you see uh, on the street corners protesting or shutting down freeways, it's likely that if you're in one of the 34 states that our affiliates are in, you're you're actually engaging with our network. You're engaging with one of our affiliates. Um, and for a long time, we really just looked to build collective power, but on the ground, locally. You know, that's old saying, like, all change happens locally or starts locally. We really believe that. But with the election of this administration, our network really understood in a in a very visceral way right that building a progressive or a blue city is not going to be enough to protect your family and your community from the reach of this administration particularly with immigration enforcement but obviously um, with the attacks on people on social security and and disability benefits uh, you know the tax on the seniors and elderly cutting meals on wheels so we decided, you know, as a network, we wanted to build a federal program, a federal arm that really can fight back and then hopefully fight forward, right? Put mm. forward the ideas that we believe will make this country a place where we can all uh, thrive. So that's what our network does every day. And, and we are on the ground floor of fights for uh, universal housing for everyone to make sure that, um, you know, people can actually have a roof over their heads and a home to thrive, uh, fundamentally transforming our immigration system so that it is focused on humanitarian efforts and not on criminalization, and, you know, really transforming the criminal legal system, which for 
since its inception, essentially has operated as an offshoot of slavery, um, you know, really transforming it to be about what justice and safety for all really looks like in mm -hmm. our communities. So would it be fair to say, as you mentioned, a, a network of grassroots organizations, a, a lot of local and grassroots organizations spread out everywhere. Mm -hmm. You guys kind of help facilitate bringing them all together into one big fist, don't you? Absolutely. We have yeah. 55 organizations in 34 states, Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C. Not only that, but we are multiracial, multigender, multigenerational, multigeographic. And so, you know, we are trying to practice this act of democracy through the building of our, of our network and our organization. We are a third led by black folks, a third led by Latinx folks, and a third led by white folks who are doing anti-racist organizing in places like Ohio and Indiana and West Virginia and New Hampshire, um, who really understand that, you know, this thing of white supremacy, which, are, you know, we have two big goals. One is to confront white supremacy and the other is to um, confront and hopefully someday end racial capitalism. And so when, you, when I tell you we got white folks in Indiana who are talking about white supremacy and confronting racial capitalism, it's because they understand that it might be a noose around the neck of people of color, but for many of the white people that they grew up around who are struggling, you know, really, really hard in this economy, this thing of white supremacy, this putting, you know, Trump in his hateful rhetoric over their own interests is really acting like a knife in their back. And so we're really trying to have that conversation with white folks in this country. I mean, lots of people have been trying to have that conversation with white folks for a real long time. Um, but I think, you know, we are trying to, our network is really trying to do that hard work. And in, in terms of that, let me run some by you, because one of the things I've, I've said that I wish that I think is a good way to explain it, and I have tried to encourage others to say it, is to show white folks how white supremacy hurts them economically. Mm -hmm. And if we go back to Dr. King, Reverend Barb and I talk about this a lot yeah. of time, the speech Dr. King gave at the Montgomery State Capitol, which is obviously overshadowed by I Have a Dream, but he said that you know racism and racial stigmas and, and um, um, racial hatred and paranoia mm -hmm. and fear-mongering are used to distract white people from the fact that they're being fleeced economically. Absolutely. So, you know, I, I just wish, don't you think that there ought to be a way to convey that a little better mm -hmm. so that people can get it? And Trump has made, been a mastermind of it, you know, building and up I, a level opposite, of hatred, yeah. <laughs> you know, and then folks like, yeah, 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 that's why I'm against Obamacare mm -hmm. and for the Affordable Care Act. No, that's a trick. I mean, <laughs> that's, you know, it seems to me there has to be a way to get that message yeah. across. I mean, the reality is, is that the way to get that message across is you have to talk to people, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, I even think about this election, uh, being a part of the Sanders campaign, we are seeing people from all walks of life come into a political revolution and a political movement. And, you know, particularly Latino folks um, and particularly young black people, young black people who have felt um, that this system doesn't represent them at all. And so, you know, when you ask them, well, what did it for you? So many of them are like, well, somebody finally talked to me. They didn't just assume that I couldn't vote uh, when they came to my door. They didn't just assume that I, you know, had a felony conviction and wasn't able. They had a conversation with me. Mm -hmm. um, so I think white folks, a lot of struggling white folks in, in these communities are very, very isolated, right? There are, there's not public transit to large cities. They're not near large cities. They're not near population centers. They don't have a lot of experience meeting people of color. I know for, for folks like on the coast, that seems mind-boggling, but I grew up in Wisconsin, and if you didn't travel to Milwaukee, 
right? There is a good chance that you could go get all the way to college and have have never had like a real yeah. relationship with a single person of color. Wow. So wow. in in you know now in this in this era, right? So I think that that's really important for us, and it's it's why we we say we have to do this work. We have to have the conversations, but we can't have a false sense of unity. We can't just go talk to people about economics and ignore race and then hope that we're somehow going to be able to build alignment together and build power together. Um, Rashad Robinson from Color of Change, he said this really incredible thing at the height of the resistance after Trump was elected, and it sticks with me nonstop. He said, people could learn to hate Trump and never learn to love black people, and we won't be any better off after this administration is gone. Mm. That was really powerful to me. Mm. Everything that I am doing in my political life right now is really in reference to that powerful statement mm. that I have to engage in a way that helps people understand and and brings people to the beauty and the magic that black people have and possess in this country, right? The freedom that we desire and that, that we deserve. And so that's why I'm trying to engage. Um, so uh, speaking of, of Bernie, mm. Center for Popular Democracy, so how does that, did you all endorse him? Did you uh, interview all the candidates and go through a process at all? What happened? So CPD Action is our political arm, and we had a very long process. Um, we started uh, building a federal agenda with our affiliates almost a year ago, um, where they really named what are our top priorities, healthcare, housing, uh, justice transformation, immigration, the environment, et cetera. Um, and then we had a big people's convention, thousands of our members in Detroit, and we asked every candidate to participate to be able to start our endorsement process. In that process, the only candidates who chose to actually make time for a vi to engage with our members were Secretary Castro, Senator Warren, and Senator Sanders. Um, we did a straw poll with all of the candidates on it, and that gave us some information about where our, our network and our members were leaning. And then we began to do um, candidate questionnaires. We had several candidates fill out those questionnaires um, but Secretary Castro, Secret uh, Senator Warren, and Senator Sanders really rose above the pack. Um, and it was clear that they were really the only three candidates who were willing to hold a, a progressive sort of standard bearer um, sense. And so we made them our finalists. We sort of said, we're done like providing you access to our people. You clearly don't want their endorsement. Yeah. Um, and it was sad because there were some of, you know, I was thinking about us. Uh, Senator Harris, for example, who just made very clear very early on that she wasn't interested in seeking our endorsement, um, even though really? many people in our network were holding out support, trying to really wanting to hear from her. Um, when you say she made it clear, she was, I mean, she, did she was really asked multiple times really? and she declined to participate. And I think, hmm. you know, if you look at sort of how she began to form her campaign, uh, she really did not tried deeply to engage grassroots organizations. I think she had a sense that the progressive left um, was not going to take her candidacy seriously or, or give her a fair shot. Mm. Um, certainly her record as a prosecutor played heavily into the reason why our members wanted to engage with her and have a question and, and be able to actually ask questions to her. Um, and, you know, I think her being unwilling to really come to the table and to, to listen to why you know, people are concerned about the way she defends her record, um, made it very hard for our network, who who definitely wants to, you know, root for everybody black to support her. 
Um, but we did have three candidates that we supported. They came in and did interviews with members from all over the country, in-person interviews. And, and I'll be real with you, I was a little bit shocked. <laughs> like, you know, these are these are car wash workers and daycare workers and McDonald's workers and, uh, you know, people who work in fields and people who are unemployed and are on disability. These are people who are recovering from drug use. Um, these are folks who are just regular people, none of them with any significant, you know, money in their pocket. And here are three top contending presidential candidates who are willing to sit for hours in a room and have real deep conversations with them about the future of this country. And I think it's because, like, labor has really sat down in this primary. You know, I think there have been less than 100 independent labor endorsements thus far. Why do you think that is? I found out you read my mind because I was like, what's up with you? I was like, why do you think that is? I mean, first of all, our brothers and sisters in labor are struggling and they're scared, right? We have not updated the labor laws in this country since the really since the formation of the union movement. Mm -hmm. And the, the labor laws are out of date and, you know, for the type of work that we now that primarily makes up our economy. And so labor is terrified. Do you see where a lot of the gains in labor organizing have been? It's been in public sector, and it's been in really the nonprofit sector. Media has also been a place where labor organizing has grown. Um, And, you know, I think that's for a reason. It's because we hold certain, you know, my staff is unionized, and we hold certain values that makes it easy for, you know, labor or easier for labor organizing to happen. But that is not the case for Walmart, for Amazon. Of course not. Um, and so I think, A, they're scared, so they don't want to alienate anybody. B, I think, uh, you know, I'll be honest with you. I think that if you asked the majority of labor union membership to vote, the vast majority of them would vote, the rank and file, would vote to endorse Senator Bernie Sanders. And I think that there are some labor unions um, for various mm. reasons where the, um, you, you know, the leadership of the union is terrified of a Sanders nomination. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, that that to me speaks volumes about, you know, what are you really building? For us, we were really clear, and, and people know this. I've, I have been an Elizabeth Warren fan for a really long time. I went through this process understanding that it was my members and not me who were going to decide who we are going to endorse, and then my job is to go right. do everything I can do to make sure their will is done. And so... You know, it became very, very clear in our network as they engaged with Senator Sanders that he was the right candidate for them, that he was a movement candidate they saw themselves in. And what I think was really powerful is that it was it really spread across race, across geography, across immigration status. I mean, the diversity of the number of the of the amount of folks who are supporting um, Sanders is just it's unlike anything I've experienced, and I've been organizing for 20 years. But if, if, I, if I heard what you said, though, you, if it, was, if it had been your personal preference, that you're accountable to your organization, which is more than admirable and appropriate, but you were kind of leaning toward Elizabeth Warren. I think in, when, I mean, I, I want to be clear, I have been working with Senator Warren for many, many years, okay. Um, okay. even before she became a senator, um, as she was putting together the CFPB. And, uh, you know, we have pushed her very hard. People inside my network have pushed her very hard to adopt a race analysis. When people say, oh, she really gets raised, 
sometimes I chuckle because I remember being in small rooms with her like seven years ago and saying, you're not talking about race enough. You need to really center race. <laughs> so it's like I chuckle about it because this is how power works, right? right? You push That's people right. and then they um, amend their positions. Right. Um, you know, I thought that uh, she should have ran in 2016 and I was part of a group. I signed on to mm -hmm. a group that tried to draft her to run. Um, you know, I was disappointed that she didn't. She would have won a nomination, I think. I think she would have won mm -hmm. the nomination, and I was disappointed that she didn't run. Um, and, you know, I came into this believing that she would, would be an absolutely strong candidate, but keeping my mind open. I, I feel that Secretary Castro ran a race that, you know, is incredibly admirable yeah. um, and really pushed the issues. And I think a lot of the things we're talking about, transgender rights, for example, we wouldn't be discussing were it not for the way he ran his campaign. Yeah. And, yeah. and his campaign manager, Maya, gets a lot of right. credit for that. Right, right. right. Um, you know, but again, I just, there was something, there's something about when you're with Senator Warren one-on-one. -on -one. But for me... I, you know, I'm not, I'm not living a lavish lifestyle, but I am, I'm doing okay. You know, I'm getting by, I, you know, have healthcare, I have insurance, I, you know, can make my, my rent payment every month, right? Like all of these things. I knew that, you know, I would be fine under a Warren administration. I'll be fine under a Sanders administration. I mean, I will do okay probably even under another four years of, of Donald Trump, right? Like I am doing okay. Um, it means something to me that the folks who are struggling most in this country, uh, you know, low-income folks, no-income folks, low-wage workers, young people who do not see their place and have the highest rates of suicide we've seen in this country, um, you know, it means something that they are putting and pinning their aspirations and their hopes and dreams in this campaign. Right. And I, I think anybody who dismisses that you know, who who tries to undermine it. Like, if we care about this country, we should be exploring it. We should be interrogating it. We should be investigating why, like, what's motivating them, because that's how we're going to change the country. We got to take all of these millions of people who are part of this political revolution and who are doing this work, and we got to keep them the day after the election engaged in organizing and fighting for the issues that actually matter. We can't see an election as an end-all, be-all way to make this country better. It never has been that. You mentioned that some of the labor leadership and obviously some of the establishment mm -hmm. is terrified of a Bernie mm -hmm. Sanders nomination. Mm -hmm. uh, talk to us about how you feel about that and why you think that that's unacceptable or misplaced. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you, you see uh, rank-and-file members of IBW are calling on their union to rescind their endorsement of Biden. Um, certainly, we saw it in the culinary workers tiff um, that happened in Las Vegas, uh, where um, you know members, um, people called them Senator Sanders supporters, but they were really members of the culinary union. Were saying you're misrepresenting the senator's plan on immigration. Uh, you're misrepresenting what Medicare for All does and will do in a mailing that was going to all of their members about how to vote. It was a voter guide mailing. Um, and so, you know, I think that the thing about this country, right, is, is like we don't wheel and deal in justice and fairness. We wheel and deal in power. And power comes usually by, you know, figuring out who you can exclude and exploit. And I think that, you know, that is we see that as like a right thing. But actually, it is just about power. Like, mm -hmm. think about this. In the most criminal, I come from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 
literally the worst city in America to be black. Like if you Google worst place in America to be black, Milwaukee, Wisconsin comes up. Mm. Um, our city has never elected black mayor. Never. Not mm. one time. Mm-hmm. Even though it's a majority people color, majority plurality black city, right? Right. And, you know, at the same time, there are lots of black elected officials in Milwaukee, just like there are in places like Chicago and Atlanta and Baltimore and many of these other places. When you look at the most criminalized cities in the country and you realize that, that those decisions happen at the city council and mayoral level, and then you go look at the city council and mayor, you realize Democrats are the, high, are, are the ones who are criminalizing our folks the most. Right. right In Milwaukee, they're spending 50% of the general purpose revenue just on policing half of the city budget just on policing Mm, mm, um mm. and so you know i think that like there's a real reason why people feel disengaged in politics and it's very intentional right there it's why we're donald trump is doing everything he can do to suppress the census right suppress latinos in the census because it's about hoarding power and resources it's about you know it's why you know in florida they are trying to prevent uh folks who have earned back their constitutionally protected right to vote right there was amendment for that passed more than 60% of the vote. And then promptly after it passed, the state legislature and the Republicans found a way to add a poll tax to that um, to prevent people from actually being able to vote. And so, you you know, that's not about, oh, we just want to have free and fair elections. That's about, we got to suppress these black folks from voting. Right, right. So, right. you know, we're up, we're up against real threats. And I think that, you know, for a number of people in labor, uh, corporate Democrats, moderates what they want to do is go back to the status quo they're not trying to fundamentally change the system they're actually doing okay like i said some of us are you know we're doing okay in the system they're not trying to change that they want to go back to the obama years and i think what you've seen in the 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 rise of resistance and the way people of color particularly in, in you know groups like mi gente and black lives matter the way that folks are engaging in politics right now is a very clear rejection of the status quo. It's not just a rejection of Donald Trump, and I think we gotta be really clear about that. Folks are not putting everything on the line, donating every last cent they have, you know, knocking thousands and thousands of doors, sending millions of text messages because they wanna go back to the status quo of previous administrations. They're doing it because they see this as a once in a generation opportunity to fundamentally restructure and shift power in this country. You know. When these young people say they believe education is should be free, it's because they know that it is the you know that that it is a trap for them that they are forced to go into, and they know that they have lots of peers who were not who were just as talented but were not able to go to college. Right? When young people talk about climate, they're serious about it because they realize that like you guys will be gone in 20, 30 years, but us and our kids, you know. We're going to be dealing with the uh, the catastrophes and the ramifications of your decisions. So, as a Sanders supporter and as someone representing yeah. Sanders supporters, what happens at the convention? I mean, I, I think we're probably <laughs> moving toward a broker convention. Um, I mean, and that's just mathematically. You know, the way it's set up is proportional, delicate allocation. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of the recent math I've seen says that for any one person to get there and reach 1991 before the convention, they literally have to win a little over 55 percent of the Mm -hmm. vote in every single state after. And Mm -hmm. with so many people in, you know, getting 55 percent is going to be even harder. You get 40, you get 49, but at 55. 
if for some reason, because so you have a broken convention, mm-hmm. those same fears you described come up, goes to a second ballot, yeah. superdelegates come back in, they, you know, wield their power again. If Bernie Sanders hmm. does not win the nomination, doesn't that do, and correct me if I'm wrong, irreparable harm? I, mean, mm. I just see a lot of Sanders supporters feeling as if, once again, it was rigged against him. Trump is going to invest a lot of money mm-hmm. into promoting that online mm-hmm. through social media. Um, what what happens? <sighs> I mean, that's a... So let me just say, our network chose to endorse Senator Sanders. 75% of our affiliates voted to endorse Senator Sanders. Mm-hmm. That's a significant number. Yeah. Um, I mean, that we, we were sort of like, oh, <laughs> you know, is it going to be 51, 52? We thought at one point we might have to do a dual endorsement. And really, in the last sort of three weeks of our process, the senator really separated himself, and, and that strength of his, the endorsement came out. It would be very strange to me um, for the party who spent the last several years uh, saying Hillary won, talking about the popular vote and how she got three million more votes and the most votes for president as any of any Democrat. And, you know, that that has been the unfairness of the electoral college system has been a part of our consciousness as Democrats um, in very significant ways. I'd say all the way back to 2000 and Al Gore. Right. 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 I am firmly for abolishing the electoral electoral college and going to a national popular vote system. And I think that anybody who truly believes in democracy should also be supportive of that. Uh, And this was the Democrats' position in the last election, is that the delegate or the candidate who has the most support, pledged delegates, should be the nominee and, and, and was the nominee in Secretary Clinton, right? Right. Um, and if the party was against superdelegates and, and, you know, broker convention and trying to, um, you know, play around with the math when, it, you know, back in 2016, then we should be against it now. And so I will say I was incredibly disappointed to, to watch the debate and to see only one candidate say that the candidate who got the most votes in the primary should be the party's nominee. I just firmly believe that. And I, I, would, I adhered to it in 2016, and I went out and I voted for Secretary Clinton, and I you know, did my part to try to help make her the next president of the United States. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. it didn't work. Mm-hmm. So um, tell us about some of the, camp, the specific campaigns yeah. that CPD and CPD Action are involved in, yeah. if you would. I would just say, you know, first and foremost, um, you know, one of the things – that brought us to Senator Sanders was the way that he has grown and, and followed the leadership of the movement, the immigrant rights movement, in his immigration policy. And so, um, you know, there are many candidates in this race who have immigration plans that would be significantly better than Donald Trump. Like, let's be clear about that. But only Senator Sanders is pledging a moratorium on deportations from day one of his, of, of his administration. And I think what our members, who, you know, a third of them are, are Latinx and, uh, and immigrants, um, what our members said is our lives aren't bargaining chips. We don't want you to use something as a negotiation tactic. We want you to do it because it's the right thing to do and it'll save people's lives. And, and so they really were drawn to Senator Sanders there. Um, we need to transform our, our, our immigration system. 
we are going into an era in this in this world in which migration is going to happen more and more because of environmental disasters, because of war, because of shortage of water, because of famine. We cannot base our immigration system on criminalizing people who are at the worst moments of their life, who are yearning to be free, who are coming to us, um, you know, really because their basic survival depends on it. So that's a big part of it. Um, another issue, and you heard Senator Sanders talk about this at the debate a lot, half a million people sleeping on the streets in this country. And I'm in L.A., yeah, and I, I will say, tell you, LA. I, in the four years I've been in L.A., every year homelessness gets worse and worse mm, and worse. Mm. I mean, it's, it's to the point where folks are really living their full lives, like not in transition, but really their full lives out in the streets. And instead of acknowledging that and figuring out, you know, how do we – what are our levels of triage? How do we build more housing? Um, you know, previous status quo administrations have led to a situation in which in 2018, 80% of all of the rental housing that was built was high-end luxury housing. Yeah. This is at the height of the homelessness crisis, right? And, and we're building high-end, 80% of the housing we're building is high-end luxury housing. Um, so Senator Sanders has a plan for that. And it's, it's you know, more, he, he will invest more in housing both building affordable housing, the creation and maintaining of public housing, and a, a, a host of other factors, rent control. He's investing trillions more than any of his competitors. Um, and so, you know, for us, this is a problem that has to be on the scale. And, and, and to be clear, this is not a supply and demand issue, because as I said, both, um, you know, the, the housing that's being built isn't being built for people who can actually rent it. Um, but also... In places like San Francisco, right, where you have this big explosion of homelessness, you've got, I think it's something like five ap empty apartments for every person who's homeless in San Francisco. And so, wow. the, you know, the, wow. the vacation rentals, the Airbnbs, um, and, you know, again, the luxury building, building at rents that are unaffordable even to, to stable working families, much less people who are living in poverty, um, has led to a situation where you got homes sitting empty people out on the streets, but no political will to match those right. things together. Right, right, and so right. Senator Sanders really, I think, stuck out for us there. The other issue I want to talk about is justice transformation. And we don't even call it criminal justice reform anymore because we <laughs> have to understand, and if anybody has not been to the Legacy Museum in Alabama, mm -hmm. um, you need to go. Because if you are not an abolitionist before you go there, when you, when you leave the Legacy Museum, what you will understand is that the system is not broken. It doesn't need to be tinkered around the edges. It is operating exactly how it was designed to operate from slavery to Jim Crow to, to you know, the, the um, just like generations and legacies of, of terror, right? This system is, is operating exactly how it was designed. And so we now talk about justice transformation. We talk about how do we build a system that is rooted in healing, rooted in caring for trauma, rooted in um, allowing people to re rehabilitate and um, to repair the harm that, that is done? And we've worked really closely with Ayanna Presley um, to introduce the People's Justice Guarantee. And her bill, the legislation that she um, has authorized, it goes past just repealing the 1994 crime bill, which has been a signature campaign of ours, and we're proud to say that both Senator Sanders, Senator Warren, and Secretary Castro all committed to repealing the 94 crime bill as part of our endorsement process, and we're really, really proud of that. Um, but 
Ayanna Presley's bill goes past that. It actually establishes a federal people's process that would go to the most incarcerated communities in the country and ask them to design a new bill that really is rooted in, in their safety um, that mm. she would introduce. So this is a really exciting thing that we had introduced. And, and, and while she's with Senator Warren, <laughs> and, and we're proud of her for making her decision, we have to say that Senator Sanders' uh, plan, justice transformation plan, is just stands out above the rest. Um, you know, from ending cash bail to legalizing marijuana, not just legalizing it, but providing reparations to the people who have been harmed by its prohibition. And, you know, this is really big for us because we believe that the right to vote is fundamental and it's the way that our people have been suppressed for generations is to deny us that right. Senator Sanders is the only candidate who believes that all people, all citizens of this country, regardless of whether or not they are currently or formerly incarcerated, deserve the right to vote. And if he were president, he would ensure that people, every citizen has the unabridged right to vote. That to me is fundamental because if it exists for people who are behind bars, who are incarcerated currently, then it will exist for our people who are just in ghettos, right? Who are just, right. you know, in, in the barrios, who are just in, you know, uh, who are just farm workers and who don't have access to all of the resources. If it exists for people who are incarcerated, it will exist for everyone. Yeah. And so, you know, it is really critical to us that we elect a candidate who understands that people are not the worst thing they've ever done. And mm. we don't stop being people because we've harmed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, that's that's a, that's a very good point. So Senator Sanders gets some nomination. Last question. I'm put you on the spot. <laughs> Who does he pick for his running mate? Listen, I think everybody should pick Stacey Abrams. Oh if if she will accept it. Then she, then Stacey Abrams should be our vice president. I don't care who <laughs> whose ticket yeah, she's on, but if she doesn't accept it, I would say that yeah, <laughs> you know yeah, I think yeah. at this point the progressive left needs to be thinking about how we're going to consolidate power. My my sense is that uh, is that Senator Sanders will continue to rise, and so I'm hoping that Senator Warren will play a key role in his administration. Uh, you know whether that's as vice president or maybe chairwoman of the Fed. Um, of the Federal Reserve. Right, right, right. Uh, so, well, and, and Stacey Abrams, I think that's a consensus. Yeah. Uh, frankly, I think if it gets brokered and nobody can agree, the one person everybody likes is Stacey. Exactly. So maybe she's just <laughs> be president. You know, <laughs> Let's may, do it. Yeah, that Wait, might can be, we make that happen? Yeah, How right. can we make that happen? Right. So I'm also hearing that if, if Stacey Abrams doesn't want to be on a ticket, then, because clearly everybody's thinking black woman. Yes then the second choice would be Kamala Harris in that slot. It, mm. it could, is that doable to you or no? I will vote for that ticket happily. I don't think it's the best ticket. Okay. You know, I think. And is that because of the criminal justice concerns? I think that there are significant criminal justice concerns, but I will vote for that ticket happily. I, I have a lot of respect for Senator Harris. I thought she was impeccable in the Kavanaugh hearings. Um, you know, I don't think it's the ticket that will excite the base that Bernie has been building. You know, the okay. other day, somebody said, what if Bernie doesn't pick a politician at all? What if somebody like, um, uh, you know, what if he picks someone like uh, Choke Lumumba, for the mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, for example? Yeah, yeah. Or <laughs> what if he uh, picks Desmond Mead, who led the Florida Restoration of Rights Coalition to winning voting rights back right. for millions of voters in Florida. Right. Like, what if he, pick, you know, even floats these types of names before he makes his decision? Right. So I think there could be an interesting thing where he picks somebody who isn't your, you know, who, who hasn't been trying to be president 
their you know whole life and what that would mean for for everyday people what if you picked a labor leader for example um a leader of a big major national union so i you know i i think that uh if Elizabeth Warren is amenable to it and if they can negotiate it before we get to convention so that it's possible for states like Wisconsin and New York and, and Michigan for all of those progressive votes to go to Senator Sanders, I think it's an interesting conversation to have. And I think many people would be happy to have uh, Senator Warren as their vice president. But I also think that you know it would be great for Senator Sanders to start talking about non-conventional people. And getting yeah, that conversation going, that would be fun. But before we go, let me just ask you about Kamala Harris. Yeah. Um, you being from or living in California yeah. now, all the concerns about her criminal justice record, mm -hmm. why were there no concerns when she was attorney general? Mm. I, would, I would not say there were no concerns. I mean, there were lots of people who were, um, you know, talking particularly about her truancy program that targeted parents whose children were truant, often low-income parents who had the least resources, um, I think there, there were a lot of conversations here. I want to be clear. Kamala Harris came up as a prosecutor in a in a very particular era uh, in you know in our criminal justice system, sort of this tough on crime um, like era, right? She she was coming up on the tail end of that, where the movement for Black Lives had not shown a spotlight. Uh, on the, in, the just the massive inequity in our system in the way that we know it to be today. Mm -hmm. I think that the issue for me is not that she, you know, supported these policies or that she made decisions as a prosecutor that as a former public defender I didn't necessarily agree with. The issue is that she seems to have not learned much from it, right? She, the way she talks about her record, she, she was questioned on it many times, and she's doubled down and said, I'm very proud of the work that I did. And she hasn't spent a lot of time talking about, here's what I, knowing what I know now, here's what I would do differently. And I think, you know, to contrast that with Senator Sanders, who also voted for the 1994 crime bill, we pushed him very, very hard on that. Why did you vote for that? What was your rationale? He talked about the Violence Against Women's Act and feeling how important it was. He talked about the assault weapons ban, which he wanted to support, which was very, very hard for him to a vote, hard vote for him to take in Vermont, but he took it. And he talked about his floor speech where he said, clearly, I will want to spend this money on education, on investment, not on criminalization, but this seems like a balance, right? And he apologized. He said, I'm sorry. It was a bad vote. I will repeal it, and I will work with you to make it better, right? I think that's what people needed Kamala to do, and she wasn't willing to do it. Um, and so I think that's, that's the thing that politicians – and if you, by the way, if you listen to how people talk about Senator Warren, it's the thing they like best about her. It's her willingness to listen and shift and adjust based on what people say. So anyway, that's my free piece of advice for Senator Harris. She can take it or leave it because, you know. But, but let, me, let me ask you this, though. So as a, but as a woman, though, even if she had, mm -hmm. Bernie um, has never really been, people never really made an issue out of his vote for the crime bill. Mm. They made a big issue out of it for Hillary, even though she never voted mm -hmm. for it. I mean, it pretty much killed her. Yeah. Um, a lot of the same people, including black people or uh, allegedly black folk, who had a problem with Kamala Harris's criminal justice rate record are silent yeah. on Bloomberg. <laughs> Bloomberg and Klobuchar. <laughs> yeah. So what what is from your point of view? I mean, isn't that still somewhat of a double? St I mean, Kamala wasn't a Bloomberg. No, no, not not by any means. And like I said, if she had won the nomination, I would have happily right, right, gone right. to vote for her. 
I, you know, why do you think people are hard on her? I mean, I think you already know race and gender compound. Right. And this is why we say identity politics are important. Right. Because we might share an identity as a woman. We might share an identity as a black person. The way that being a black woman and the like challenges on your existence in Mm -hmm. in this world are, are special and unique, which is why you have Klobuchar getting a pass and, and Kamala getting, you know, taken to, you know, to the carpet. I think that um, my dream, and it's interesting because going back to Milwaukee one last time, uh, we've got a mayor's race happening in Milwaukee. Okay. Um, and the white mayor... Is um, a black person running for mayor this time? So a black okay. woman is running for mayor. Good. Okay. The, the white mayor has been mayor for 16 years. If he wins, um, he will have, you know, go on to his 20th year as mayor. And um, he has proceeded, he's a white man who has presided over the worst city in America to be black for 16 years. Mm-hmm. And, you know... The, the woman who's running against him, Senator, State Senator Lena Taylor, is somebody who I have had many uh, political battles with, right? We have gone up against each other on her support for voucher and charter schools. Uh, we've gone up against each other on her, um, you know, position on guns and gun safety. Mm. Um, you know, we, we have gone up against each other on her positions around economic development and the minimum wage. And uh, I never thought I'd say this, but yesterday I made a Facebook post and I asked all my friends and family in Milwaukee to vote for her for mayor. Is that right? Because, you know, here's the thing. She will be at least as competent, like she literally can't be worse because it's already the worst, (laughs) as the white mayor. And so for me, I say, let's give a majority people of color city over to the governance to people of color. And let's trust black and brown organizations to push them to be better because they have to do that with a white mayor or with a black mayor so let's go ahead and make history so thing with Kamala Harris like I really wanted a black woman president I kept our space for her in our endorsement process I probably was one of the hardest pushers for her in mm. the endorsement process right. she didn't want to participate mm. so there's nothing I can do about that and Same. I think you know at the end of the day what I've learned from this race and I'll wrap up with this is that we are better representatives of our needs than any career politician ever will be And so, you know, I want to encourage people who have been inspired by whatever campaign you're inspired by, Bernie's campaign, by Warren's campaign. There are black progressives out there. There are black socialists out there. Mm -hmm. We rarely run for office. If I had one dream, it would be in 2021. So many people who got skills on this campaign will turn around and apply those skills to running for office themselves. We need to fundamentally transform who is in office and make sure more of us have power. Indeed, indeed. Jennifer Epps Addison, very active, folks. Uh, you can, I'm sure you can hear her energy and her <laughs> voice. She's very, very busy and doing a lot of great work. The Center for Popular Democracy, if you want to have your finger on the pulse of what's going on on the ground with a lot of grassroots work and organizing organizations and organized uh, uh, labor, um, populardemocracy.org. Visit the website, get involved, make a donation. Uh, I think you can tell we'll be hearing much, much more from Jennifer Epps Addison in the weeks and months and years maybe to come. And we're so glad you stopped by. Appreciate Thanks for your having insight. me. All right. And mm-hmm. uh, we look forward to doing much more, more work with you. Center for Popular Democracy at populardemocracy.org. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to Make It Plain and Get Woke. Remember to listen, like, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Also, Subscribe to Make It Plain and Get Woke Daily. Check out MakeItPlain.com to subscribe.
If all minds are clear, it has been made plain. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.